We're going to continue in our series of words on character this morning with the word humility. Uh, we are thinking about important words in the Bible all throughout this year. There is a, a list on the, uh, the front foyer, or I think there might be a list on this foyer too, of the words that we're going through this year. Uh, this is uh, the, the series on different words about character. We've done uh, uh, self-control, and we did... Mercy. Ah, oh, thank you. We did mercy last week. Uh, so we're, we're continuing through this series and then sort of give you a, a heads up of what we're going to do through the rest of the year. We're going to have a series towards the end of the year on sort of eternal things, judgments and heaven and hell and hope and those sorts of things as we round out the year. Humility is a tricky subject in Christianity. It's one of those things, the paradoxical thing, right? If you think you got it, you don't have it, right? The idea of humility, oh, I'm so humble. Well, you know, then you're not humble, right? The paradox of humility in Christianity specifically, Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you can see already they're, they're thinking about this the wrong way, right? They're thinking about this from earthly terms of who's the best, who is the best. And what does Jesus say? Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so we see sort of the two ways that humility can sort of go awry in this child. Of course, the first one is that paradox, right? Being humble as a means to an end is not humility. Being humble so that I can be the greatest, right? Now, it's interesting the way that he answers this, right? Their, their question, who is the greatest? The one who is humble. But humble specifically in a particular way. Humble like a child. And we think about the other way this might go. We might be humble in sort of self-abuse and self-abasement, which isn't really how children are, right? We think about children, the dependence and humility of children. They're very innocent in their humility, and so we think about the two extremes of this. The humility as sort of the opposite, the means to an end humility. I'm going to be humble so that everybody knows how great I am. Or I'm going to be humble so that I'm so awesome. Or the sort of self-flagellation, self-abuse that we sort of the, the, uh, the word that Colossians will use at the end, asceticism, right? The sort of severe self, sort of uh, self-abasement. That's not really how children are either. Right? We're thinking about humility as a child. And so we're thinking about two passages this morning. One Old Testament, one New Testament. The one in Micah is what we're going to focus on in the Old Testament. And then a passage in the New Testament that really illuminates what God is expecting of us if we are to be humble. And we're going to consider a few things. Number one, what kinds of attitudes do we need to get rid of if we want to be humble? Some things that are the opposite of humility or get in the way of humility. Number two, what should be the source of our humility? What makes us humble in the way that God wants us to be humble? What is going to be the source of humility like a child? And then number three, what sort of actions or behaviors, of course, should humility lead to? We can derive humility from the wrong places, thinking about it in the wrong way, and it can lead us to do the wrong sorts of things if we are not careful. Now, make no mistake, humility is a required characteristic, of course, of those who would be with God. We just read, right, in Micah 6, 6 through 8. And there's sort of a sarcastic, not sarcastic, but uh, a sort of mocking, questioning sort of idea in these verses. The questions that, of course, the prophet is asking are, are not rhetorical in some sense, but they're de designed to mock or to teach the people in Israel who sort of had this bad attitude. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased? And the, the sort of hyperbole here, right? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? And of course, the extreme of this hyperbole. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What is he talking about here? This attitude that had persisted in Israel... It sort of doesn't matter what you do as long as you offer the right sacrifices. And if you offer enough sacrifices, and if you offer the best kinds of sacrifices, then, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do the rest of the time. You can be as abusive or as mean or as oppressive as you want to, but we're going to offer thousands of rivers of oil, 10,000 rivers of oil, so many sacrifices to God. And of course, what is Micah saying here? That's not what God wanted. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The Israelites had a lot of problems, many of which stemmed from their lack of humility. First, they didn't care much for the bulk of God's commands. Now, when I say they, who are we talking about? We're talking primarily about the leaders in Israel, the upper class in Israel. Uh, there are some, some commands and, and some statements against the sort of the average sort of person in Israel, but for the most part, this is directed to the priests, at the, the rulers, the ones in charge, who were corrupt, greedy, and selfish. They thought that what they wanted was the most important thing. How they wanted to live, what they could do for gain, how they could have the most. The opposite of humility, right? They were arrogant. They thought they were the center of Israel. And so they were corrupt. They had, they had forsaken their need to teach truth so many times in the prophets. He talks about how the prophets were teaching them and they're like, ah, forget those. And they, of course, we read this. When did we read this? Oh, maybe it was on Wednesday night. The idea that they sort of had their own set of prophets that would tell people what they wanted to hear. The prophets that would tell them, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. God's happy with us. There's not going to be destruction. They had forsaken their need to focus on God's truth in the prophets that he had sent. So they were corrupt. They were uh, mistreating the poor. They were exacting heavy taxes and usury. They were putting themselves first in all sorts of ways. And so they thought, what? Secondly, that God wouldn't care what they did so long as they offered enough in sacrifice, right? Well, we're just going to live the way that we want. It doesn't matter. We're just going to offer God enough sacrifices. And I don't know, what, did they, what were they thinking? Did they think that God wouldn't notice? Like, oh man, they gave me a thousand rams. They're so great. Like God wouldn't notice or care about the sin because of the greatness of their sacrifice. If I give God all of these things in this sort of corporate formulaic worship, then ah, he won't care about what I do the rest of the time. He won't care about how I treat other people because my offering is so great that he, won't be, he just won't be able to help himself but to be enamored with me, to be forgiving of me, to not care about what I'm doing the rest of the time, right? And, and we think about the thousands of rams. Nobody's going to offer a thousand rams today. You don't even have a thousand rams. I doubt very much anybody in this congregation has a thousand rams. So what does that mean for us? Well, I'm a really good singer. I come to worship every time. I have this sort of outward display of humility. And as long as I say all the right things and do all the right things and come to the right services and, and sort of have this sort of corporate mentality, then God surely won't care what I do the rest of the time, right? That is the opposite of humility. Putting our desires, how I want to live, what I want to do, what matters most to me, when I put that ahead of what God wants, we are being the opposite of humble. Arrogant in the utmost. To think that, oh God, I know he said a bunch of stuff about what he wants us to do, but he didn't really mean that. He just wants me to come to worship and that's it. He just wants me to pray every day and that's it. 
when we put our desires ahead of the things that God has explicitly said that he wants. We are being arrogant. Now, the second passage that I want to look at, the Philippians 2. You knew we'd come to this, right? We're going to start with the second half of this, and then we're going to do the first half of this in just a minute. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. I want to note, Real quick, we're going to hit this again. I just want to note really quick. Humility does not come from the fact that we are sinful. Jesus is humble, and he had no sin. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and on under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if we want to know how to be humble, of course Jesus is a good place to look. Uh, what exactly did he do to, quote-unquote, humble himself? What did that look like? Well, number one, he relinquished authority. Now, we could go back to Micah. What would that look like, if we're thinking about relinquishing authority, what would that look like in the lives of the leaders and the priests in Israel? Well, that would be, what I want doesn't matter as much as what God wants. Authority over my own desires. Now, of course, Jesus is not just giving that up. He's giving up all sorts of stuff, of course, the, in, in the example in Philippians. But we think about this first part of it, to relinquish authority, to be humble before God, to walk humbly with your God, is to relinquish authority over your own life. What I want is not the most important thing. What I desire is secondary. What I think is best is not really best. But I'm going to relinquish authority of my life to God. That's number one. Number two, he mingled with the inferior. What does that mean to humble himself? Again, what does that mean? Jesus, in the we talked about this a little bit in Bible class this morning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Existing in the form of God is how he says it in Philippians. God in totality, the creator of all things, who humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Now, this plays out in a number of different ways, but when we think about him associating with the lowly, the inferior, that's us. He became like us, who are inherently inferior to him. His humility led him to associate with us. Now, in more specific nature, of course, we think about in the, the time of his life, associating not just with humanity in general, but with those who were outcast in society, right? Those who society did not like, those who society had forsaken. His, of course, uh, we, we read this, I think, last week, right? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. When was that said? He was eating with the tax collectors and sinners, associating with those who society thought were sort of worthless. That was humility. To mingle with and associate those who were, in his sense, literally inferior. But for us, of course, we understand that inferior is sort of a, an unusual term. We would not... So, but we should not even say that people are inferior. Of course, they were to Jesus. But the outcasts in society are not inferior to us. So we would say perhaps associating with those who have less. Who have less money, who have less social standing, who have less status, who have less whatever. To associate with those whose society would say are inferior, even though we know they're not. Number three, 
He obeyed no matter what. The third aspect of his humility. He humbled himself by what? By becoming obedient to the point of death. When we think about humility in our lives, this all goes together, right? We're relinquishing authority to God. We're associating with those who are, quote-unquote, inferior to us, who are lowly and, and despised by the world. We're going to obey God no matter what. Now, in Jesus, in the life of Jesus, it was to the point of death. That's what the Philippians passage says, right? We think about the story in the garden. He's in the garden, weeping, uh, shedding drops of blood, and he says, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He obeyed no matter what. We, as we're thinking about humility, means that we will obey God even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult. Like the promise of Matthew. His humility did, not, uh, did lead to exaltation, right? He was ultimately exalt, exalted. And we think about the Matthew passage. Whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant. If, unless you humble yourself like a child, that's who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But the important thing is what? Jesus did not exalt himself. He let the Father do that. We think about our own humility. You can sort of have this bad idea about humility that it's a means to an end. Yet at the same time, the end is still there. God will exalt those who are humble if we let him do the exalting and not ourselves. From this example, we learn, as we said, one more important thing. Humility does not necessarily derive from our sinfulness. And we can take this to an extreme, right? To think about our, we are indeed worthless in comparison to God. And we can have this idea, my sin is so bad, I'm so horrible, I'm such a horrible person, to lead to this sort of extreme of humility that ultimately leads to the actions of Judas. We contrast Judas and Peter, both of whom were sinful. Peter denied Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus. And Judas let that lead him to what? To suicide. Because he felt so worthless, so separated from God. And you might think, well, that was a humble act, but it wasn't humble. It was Despair. So we think about humility. One aspect of our humility is we are sinful, separated from God. But if Jesus could be humble, we know that sin is not the root of humility. Jesus humbled himself by obeying and relinquishing his authority to the Father. We can be humble, recognizing, yes, we're sinful, recognizing still that we can be humble in the way that God wants, if what? If we obey. And if we do what God wants. Self-abasement and self-abuse is not humility. Focusing on our worthlessness, if it is not directed towards obedience, is not humility. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. We see the contrast here. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So don't get me wrong, we are sinful and unworthy of grace, but humility emphasizes not necessarily our own worthlessness, but God's goodness, his exalted nature. It emphasizes the goodness of God and what he has done and his elevated state, that he is better than us, absolutely. Humility recognizes that I am not the center of the universe. I know that's hard to hear for some of us, We are not the center of the universe. God is. And yet, what? He has placed value on us. And his judgments are right. Amen? 
If God says we have value, then what? Then we have value. But again, as Jesus allowed the Father to exalt himself, or exalt him, we must allow God to exalt us and not exalt ourselves. And so what does that look like? Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if there's any of those things, are there those things? Do you, do you feel like we have these things? I hope we have these things here. Do you feel encouragement and, and comfort and love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy? I hope you experience those things here. Then what? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what humility leads to. Christ was humble because he submitted to the will of the Father and was motivated by the needs of others. Specifically who? Well, that would be us. Motivated by our need. His actions were driven not by his own desire. He says that in the garden. I don't want to do this. But what does the Hebrew writer say? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He did it for us. He counted others as more significant than himself. Even though we aren't. Right? We're not more significant than Jesus. We aren't. There's no way around that. He is better than us in all respects. And yet he acted, was motivated by what we needed and not what he wanted. That's what humility is. True humility emphasizes other people rather than the self. And I got this quote from the study guide that I said you could read if you wanted to. I love this quote. The truly humble man is not the one who exalts himself or belittles himself, but rather the one who doesn't think of himself at all who thinks of others, who thinks of what God wants. Maybe you remember the children's song, right? J-O-Y, 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 this is what it means. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. That is a song about humility, isn't it? About what humility looks like. And it may seem semantic, but framing humility in terms of elevating the other is important. They were submitting to God's will, no matter what the cost is, despite what we want, that's what humility is. To put God's will ahead of our own. Because he is high and lifted up. He is better than us. But to also then put the interests of others first. To be humble is to emphasize the other. Either God in his perfection or other people in their need. That is what humility is. We can do these things without the false self-abasement warned about in Colossians. Colossians 2, 18 through 20, this asceticism, this severe form of sort of outward showing of humility, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Humility is not something that we sort of outwardly show. It's not something that we sort of parade around. Look at me, look how humble I am. Humility is what? Stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Changing the way we live changing the way we think about other people, 
and putting their interests first. We'll end with Luke 5, 3 through 6. I love this as an example of humility because I think this demonstrates both our struggle with humility, but ultimately what humility should look like. Luke 5, 3 through 6. Putting into one, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. That's so funny, isn't it? He kind of thinks Jesus is ridiculous. Jesus, we did this. We know it's not going to work. We already did this, but I guess. I guess I'll do it if you say so. Isn't that the attitude we have sometimes about God, about his commands? God, this isn't going to work, but I guess because you said so, I will. That sort of, sort of halfway humility. But in the end, unfortunately, he did obey, right? He obeyed. Regardless of his attitude about it, he did obey. And what do we see? When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. The humble person recognizes that despite our expertise, and I have expertise in quotes, Despite what I think is best, and that could be relationships, that could be at work, that could be in the church, that could be in, in worship, whatever it is, we have these ideas about how life should work, about what, how things should be. And maybe we think to ourselves, yes, of course, I, I'm obviously the smartest. I know what's best. I know what I need. I know what, what we should do. But if at the end of the day, we're not willing to just do what Jesus said, it doesn't matter what's in our heart, what's in our minds, if we're not willing to submit to his will, we will not reap the benefits. The benefits of humility are that when we obey what God has said, then he will bless us the way he has promised. But we only receive that blessing if we're willing to humble ourselves enough, even if we don't understand how it's going to work. Again, Peter did not understand how it will work. But he obeyed anyway. He submitted despite that and was blessed for it. As we're thinking about humility, what are you holding on to in your life? This could be an action. It could be a relationship. It could be an attitude. Whatever it is that we hold on to in our lives because I think that I know best. You can think about Micah again, the priests in the Old Testament. They were holding on to what? Greed and selfishness. Ah, God won't care. For us, again, it could be a relationship, could be a habit, could be something that we think about people, that we hold on to because, oh, God won't really care. God doesn't care about X, Y, or Z. I know what's best for me. But again, humility is what? Elevating God's will above our own. And humility is what? Putting the needs of others ahead of ourselves.